I'm WFAE's David Borax, and this is R&D in the QC. Tarek Bakari and Larkin Eggleston, one Republican and one Democrat who bonded as first-term Charlotte City Council members. Somehow, they both got re-elected, and now we're stuck listening to another season of this amateur hour bullshit. In the first 82 episodes, they talked to a governor, a senator, presidential candidates, and even a journalist or two. Their goal again this season, bringing Charlotte listeners behind the scenes of the city council in one of America's fastest-growing cities. I won't be listening, but for some reason, you are. It is R&D in the QC, and it is episode 109, where we drop deep, finally, into local issues, the things that we're here for, the things that we want to talk about, local issues, some of the city's biggest challenges, some of their biggest opportunities, and what we discussed at the annual strategy session last week. It includes Charlotte Moves, arts funding, renaming streets, and council terms and pay. My trusty sidekick Larkin is with us. Let's get into the show. That was weak. That was a good intro. Come on. It was was long. It was rambling. It wasn't that high energy. I'm not your sidekick. Um, There was a lot wrong with that. Look, we... Potato. We'll work on that later. We Tom. did, though, fulfill our commitment. We said last week we'd be back this week to unpack the retreat, um, which was not much of a retreat, but uh, nonetheless. And we heard people loud and clear. Uh, we did have a lot of engagement on our more national political discussion last week, uh, but we did hear from folks that is not what they look to us for. Uh, so hopefully, for the next four years, things will be a little calmer in Washington and we can focus on Charlotte. They don't look to us for that. And clearly we don't love be having to talk about it, but it was one of our largest, uh, it's in the top five, at least of our most um, viewed and listened to podcasts. Uh, and I am going to have you check right now just to make sure that this is not something just on my end, but uh, are you still rolling on your Facebook video? I'm seeing it. Okay. So that much, that's just on my end then. That's weird. Never mind. Disregard. Um, Disregard. So can somebody watching comment so we know you're here? Are you there? Can you hear us? Because Larkin's technology is it's probably user error, I think. So we'll we'll see that well, as it arrives. I, Move to the first topic. I'm not positive if I paid my CompuServe bill yet this month. I'm sorry, you're what? <laughs> that's not who you get your internet from? CompuServe? Yeah, you remember CompuServe. Okay. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Continue, sir. All right. Well, as long as no one picks up the phone in here, we should be fine. Which one do you want to start on? Um, let's go with the small stuff. Charlotte Moves, I think, is a big one. Let's let's leave that for last. Um, right. And let's start with let's start with the council uh, like governance structure. I think that's yeah. a pretty simple one to unpack at least in terms of of the decisions that were made. Uh, We did bring that up. Obviously there was a a community group of of citizens that looked into a bipartisan group of citizens that looked into everything from pay to council structure to district versus at-large makeup, um, things like term limits. Um, So the big takeaways from the meetings we had Monday and Tuesday of last week was one, took the idea of nonpartisan elections off the table um, that actually is fairly common. And I think in Charlotte, we, it's, ne- it's never really been the way we've done it. So people are just kind of accustomed to the way that it's done in their own cities. 
but a lot of our peer cities across the state do nonpartisan elections. A lot of peer cities across the country do nonpartisan elections. There was not an appetite for that on council. Um, that was taken off the table. There's also a determination that in the, uh, that the city of Charlotte would not have the authority under state law to do term limits. And so uh, regardless of how long the terms were or anything else, you cannot do term limits uh, unless there's some change in state law. So we said, all right, scrap that too. We're not, that's, it's not a hill we're going to die on or a fight we're going to fight. Um, the idea of going, and the recommendation I believe was to go from seven districts and four at-large members to eight districts and three at-large members. I think there were uh, folks on both sides of that issue, but uh, one of the determinations that, that or recommendations I put forward was that depending on when we get the census data, and you and I were both on a call about this today, we will have to redistrict uh, our city based on that new census data. Typically that would have been done in time for this 2021 election. The census data has been delayed for a multitude of reasons. Um, and I've not yet gotten clarity. And, and I don't know if you heard, I don't, I don't know that they got to this on the call today, but um, I've not gotten clarity yet on whether we'll have that in time to do it for the 21 election or we do it for the 23 election. Uh, I would certainly propose that it would not make sense for us to try to redistrict twice in two years. So I think any consideration of switching to eight districts and three at-large members should probably be tabled um, or, or be handled at the same time that we are handling redistricting uh, to better align the districts with the new population data that we'll get from the census. So what, what were your thoughts on those conversations um, and, and where we go from here? I do think that we'll ultimately end up making our pay um, commiserate with the county commission, which is not still not significantly different, but, um, but is a little boost in pay uh, might allow for more people to the option to serve. Um, there is a discussion around four-year terms, though I think there was some agreement that that would be a more of a ballot initiative for citizens to decide. Thoughts? Yeah, so I'll start with the basic one of we, on that census call today where we kind of got the updates there, I agree timing is the critical uh, factor. Will we have the information to do the redistricting before the 2021 election? or not. Um, I, I learned some interesting facts there on, you know, how that all works, which I thought was pretty cool where it's pretty cut and dry as it relates to if you need to redistrict or not, right? With the, the 5% rule where you kind of see the, the, the whole principle that they started was districts need to be about the same size and population so that everyone's vote counts about the same. And you take the new census numbers you get, you compare your existing districts to see where there are, there are imbalances and inequities in numbers. And if you're there, which there are two rules, one is like your, your, your largest plus your smallest deviation in percentage needs to be under 10%. And the second rule, which you can use, is none of the districts are, are, are more than 5% changed in number um, or in, in, off of the average, I'm sorry, um, district size. Uh, you know, that's, so that to me is the pretty clear cut and easy one. The, that is, do I need to redistrict? And then more than likely we are going to need to, because some districts have seen, all districts have seen growth, but some have seen some ex exceptional growth. So we're going to have to do that. And um, then the question becomes, how do you go about doing it fairly? And, you know, that, that's the, the question that's as, as old as time there. Um, so that's going to come into play here. And it's a factor. I think when you look at what this uh, commission did, and I really um, want to thank everyone that served on that, particularly uh, Amy Peacock, who jumped in and, and uh, served as a leader of that initiative. Great work. Thank you all for the time you put in. 
I think at the end of the day, only two things are going to come forward and be voted on. And one is to go from two-year to four-year terms, probably staggered. <clears throat> and two is to do a pay raise equivalent to that of city uh, county commission, which I think is like 52,000 for the mayor and 45,000 for commissioners. So, um, you know, I, I'm opposed to both of those. And it's pretty clear cut. I've said it multiple times where um, are we underpaid for our contributions and what we do? Absolutely. Right. Is running every two years of pain? Absolutely. But the further apart we get from election cycles and the people and the people voicing to us um, how they feel about what we're doing, um, the more disconnected we are from why we started to do this in the beginning. And I believe it's only hard if you're, you know, maybe not doing what you need to do. And, and if, if you're doing things that you should be doing, it shouldn't be a massive effort, right? I, I, there are probably exceptions to that, but at the end of the day, I like the two-year cycles. And I hate the thought of having to wait four years if you realize who somebody was as they ran as a first-time person, you don't have that time. And the pay, do we all deserve more pay? Sure. But I, I just am a firm believer that it, I want a special person to serve us in elected office, right? And I'm not saying like, I'm a special person or you are. I'm just saying, I want someone who is, who is exceptional, I don't want it to be something that people view as, oh, there's another job. I could do that or I could do this, right? Which one makes more? I want it to be someone who's like, like early on in our founding fathers viewed it as a sacrifice. And I don't necessarily mean by that to make it inequitable that people who could be great and contribute and are special in their own ways, but haven't made it to a point where they can afford to do this. I don't, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be able to, but what I'm saying is when you raise that salary to be more like a job, it's going to now become something that people view as a job. And I, I, I just yeah. I am firmly against that, no matter how much I like money, I just think it, it promotes the wrong thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that the pay increase to be par with County commission is going to make this uh, something people view as a huge windfall opportunity financially. But I, I do think it is a privilege that you and I have to have jobs where you're kind of in control of your day-to-day -day job. I've got a lot of flexibility in my day-to-day -day job. Um, it's, it's a privilege based on the jobs that we have that we're able to juggle both of those things. And so there are certain people who wouldn't be able to do that. And, and I do think this makes it more open for more people to be able to serve. The, the two to four year terms thing, um, I think there are very clear, um, that I think everyone would agree on benefits and detriments to that switch to a four year term. Um, there obviously is much more immediate accountability in a two year term. However, I think that four-year terms allow council members to take more um, brave stances on things that are for the benefit of the city because we've seen it. You and I've seen it firsthand. There are people who the day they start a term think that they're already running for the next term. And I think that that weighs into the way that some people- And I sometimes. hate that about politicians. Literally, like, I get it. I'm not the best politician in the world, but I, like, I wouldn't do something personally. And this is my own style- and take a position in an off election year that I wouldn't take in an on election year. And I know that's an anomaly. Well, I just hate that. And, about and I'm not pointing, I'm not pointing at you, but I'm just saying that we, we've seen instances where I think people would have done something differently if they didn't feel like there was an election right around the corner. Yep. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's disappointing, but I think it's a reality for, for some people in office. Um, and they would be staggered terms. So you would have every two years, the mayor and the at-large members would be up and the, and two years later, all the districts would be up. So, you'd constantly have accountability on the board. Every two years, you'd be voting on city council members and you could 
switch up some of the pieces in any given two-year period. Uh, you just wouldn't have them all coming up at the same time. I think the other thing with two-year staggered terms is we very well, if you go back to the 2017 election, you move a couple of other races up or down a few percentage points, we could have had an almost near turnover of the city council, but for one or two members. Um, I think that could have been really detrimental to the city's business if we had an entire you know, class of, of first timers. I think even having six of us was, was a lot. Um, and, and I think it brought some positive energy, but we had a huge learning curve and there was a loss of institutional knowledge. And so I think the idea that you could lose the entire body in one election could really set the city back on some of the things that we're trying to work towards. So I, I do think there'd be some continuity benefit to, to the four-year term. But I think we give ourselves versus staff far too much credit for what is in the critical path and what isn't. So you would vote yes on that. Is that right? Four-year staggered terms, I, I am in support of. Um, pay increases too? The pay, I could take or leave, but I think that the benefits outweigh the, the downsides on that. And again, it's we're not talking about some uh, exorbitant pay here. We're talking about what is still arguably close to minimum wage based on the hours that, that good council members put in. Um, but I think it does open the door for more people to be able to consider serving. Let's do um, an informal live stream poll of R&D in the QC listeners. I think we're already getting that feedback. We're getting some, but I want formal. Also, we we're going to make this a have, poll. But we also have 24 minutes according to your drop dead time to cover. Yeah, we got to roll topics. here. Okay, so that's it. Topic one, done. Arts, arts funding. Uh, the big news the other week was that Jeep Bryant, uh, in his second year leading the helm of, or at the helm of arts and science council is leaving, I think effective maybe in a week or two. And um, obviously that's in the wake of the failed sales tax though, to, to be fair, that was not a sales tax that he had brought forward uh, initially, but he, one that he kind of picked up midstream when he came in. Um, their whole model's changing. COVID has changed things for the arts community. You and I have been um, beating the drum, particularly for live music, but I think for the arts in general throughout COVID um, there's a lot more questions than answers right now on how we move forward as a community around the arts more broadly. And, and I think, again, you and I have drilled into the live music piece of that a little bit more, but um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, we are trying to figure out what that answer is because I don't think the rejection of the tax referendum last year was a rejection of the arts by our community. I think they felt like that was not the right answer to a question that we all agree is the right question. Exactly, exactly. That's that. That's the punchline. So I, um, if you recall, was uh, a, an adamant uh, a, opposer of the arts uh, referendum in 20... I think I remember a billboard. I, I, had, I had 10 billboards, actually. Um, but that was just uh, uh, all in good fun. Um, uh, that was what year? 2019? <laughs> Who gets billboards in good fun? Well, we all know they're irrelevant. Art Macari does. More of a statement piece, right? Um so, um, so, but again, your point is spot on. I, I felt like I have a deep place in my heart for the arts of all kinds. So it was hard for me to take that position, knowing it would be interpreted by some and positioned by others as, as these people are anti-arts, which is like the exact opposite of everything I stand for. So what I and many others in this unique coalition that was built, in fact, one of the most unique in, in my, all of my time in Charlotte, uh, was the fact that, um, that it was the approach. It was, it, was really, it was really an approach of a smaller group of people crafting a plan in Charlotte's terms, right? Where typically the plan is less about what we're gonna do to change the model 
to react to the new reality as it exists. And it's more of a plan to how we're going to market and position the need for funding and the sources of funding. And they spend all their time on promoting that plan for how to get the money. And, they, and, and it's really meant to just simply give a blank check to operate in the exact same way that, that the system has operated before. Now, I have learned so much even since that election of there are many places where I cannot speak with the broad brush like this. I'm, I'm on the board of the Blumenthal now. And it's an amazing organization. And they, they have parts of that organization that I think can be duplicated across the entire system, right? There's also um, some pretty cool, I, I learned some cool stuff that actually existed in the Arts and Science uh, Council uh, in how they do their annual vetting process for grants, top of the line. So I'm not trying to say it's all bad. What I am trying to say is it's nowhere close to sustainability. And I'm a believer that a true thr thriving arts model is always going to have some parts that need some subsidy, right? But when it's massively subsidized, it becomes this small group of people in a back room deciding what art is and what it isn't. And that's where you see these divides between the big institutional arts groups and the smaller individual contributors in the grassroots organization, which was another death knell in that entire approach in 2019. So that's the long-winded way that I can cap off very quickly to say, I have been at the table trying to find in good, in good faith, how do we come and not repeat the mistakes of the past? And I just had this vibe that kind of was a little bit reinforced, but, and they're good people. I'm not trying to take away. They have good hearts for it. It's the same approach we're seeing now, just kind of rebranded a little slightly differently with a slightly different funding ask and approach. And I think if we can figure out how to not repeat the same model and we can make it a little more inclusive, Braxton and I are now, they've, they've heard us, they've put us on this committee um, from that conversation and a little more inclusive and a little more focused on not just figuring out how to fund the existing thing, but reimagining what the existing thing is part and parcel, not kind of making a mental note. We'll get to that after we figure the funding out. Yeah. I mean, I, I think these conversations have historically been led by the biggest funders, which are, are, are large corporate entities. And I think they're always going to need to be at the table because they can write the big checks that can save some of these institutions uh, when need be. And so I think having them as, as leaders at the table is important. I think you and I have also, you kind of said this, stress the importance of, you know, a Joe Kuhlman who owns Evening Muse and, and folks like him, we have to also have the more grassroots um, folks at the table too, because they represent an equally critical, but very different part of our arts community. Um, Joe, for that specific example, has been someone who's been bringing together a lot of the local music venue owners and, and, sort of advocating as a coalition in a, in a way that I think has been very effective, particularly during the pandemic. So both, both the, you know, the top of the, the bank towers and the on, on the ground live music venues that hold a hundred people, like all those people need to be at the table. And I think a, a part of this that Charlotte citizens are going to have to accept is that um, the old way of, of standing up these really critical institutions in our community is not going to be the way we move forward. And, the things that are important to you are things that you need to become as you're able. And, and for those that are able, you're going to need to become a patron of. And I think, you know, if the Blumenthal and, and being able to have performances like Hamilton in our city is important to you, you need to be a, a, at least a partial season ticket holder if you're able. If, if things like the Evening Muse and Neighborhood Theater and Vigilite are important to you, you need to be going to shows there and, and you need to be supporting those places. And so I, 
you know, the symphony or the opera or whatever, we all have the things that are our specific passions. Um, but expecting that they're always going to be there without your support for the once a year that you want to go is probably not realistic anymore. And so if it's important to you and it should be that we have a symphony, we have an opera and whatever, the ones that you're most passionate about, find a way to be more involved because the, the systems that have held them up for all this time for them to be there for you on those occasions you want them, they don't, those aren't the systems anymore. That's so. exactly that you nailed it right there. And I'll say it another way, which is the free market. We've had this discussion before is a force, right? And you can agree with it, disagree with it, believe it's there. It's not there. But the fact of the matter is people vote with their dollars and their contributions and their participation. And over time, there was a model propped up on corporate giving that evaporated right? It was the few to the few brokering the forcing of the many. I was one of the many back in the, you know, Wachovia days and all that stuff that we worked each year on these campaigns and made it all happen. They, they, they all told you that you were going to donate. Right. It, we, yeah. We were like, you will donate. I mean, it, it, that was it. Right. And it was, and that's the flaw of the few to the few to the many not being like, as soon as one of those few is like, hey, you know what, I'm not good anymore, then all of a sudden the entire thing collapses. So my whole point that I'm going back to is, you know, there can be government involvement in this in some ways, but it cannot subsidize the old thing. At the end of the day, you have to, you have to figure out what the new thing is that reinvigorates, that recreates the passion in the free market, those who go out there to come and support it. And yeah. then all of a sudden you have something, not just a small group of people in a back room saying, I believe this is art. This is what I want to go see. And now let's come up with the PowerPoint that's, that, that tells us how we're going to position this for funding. Yeah. And if we, I mean, if we lose some of these things in our community, if we don't figure out the answer to this question, um, it will be detrimental to our city as a whole, whether you, whether you personally attend these things or not, it will be a loss for our city. Um, all right. Legacy commission. Um, similar to the Charlotte Moves uh, Citizen Group, which we'll get to uh, fourth and finally, similar to the governance committee that Tark uh, and I were referencing earlier, um, there was a legacy commission put together to explore some of the things in our community that represent um, particularly around Confederate history um, that honor some of the people from that history um, or people with, with ties to white supremacy and other things that um, we now feel the need to to take another look at and and i think you make a, a valid point there are recommendations and i'll rattle these off real quick um, mostly around streets there's really not um not much in the way of confederate monuments there are some um, remembrances in in cemeteries around confederate soldiers that is generally viewed by the historic community or kind of historic historians and historic preservation community as an appropriate place for those type of things cemeteries um, certainly museums are viewed as appropriate. There's not much outside of that in terms of monuments in Charlotte, but we do have street names and I'll, I'll rattle those off real quick. Jefferson Davis Street, Hill Street, Stonewall Street, Jackson Avenue, Pfeiffer Avenue, Acock Lane, Behringer Drive, Morrison Boulevard, Zebulon Avenue. Uh, those are the, the main ones. And so there's uh, recommendations to rename those. Two things that I think, and I'm obviously in support of that, two things, one that I brought up and one that you brought up that I think are, are valid points here. One is there's a cost associated with this and changing the street signs is a cost the city can absorb. And that's, that's nominal. But you now I've spoken to people on one of these streets that's in my district and they've said, we don't mind, you know, certainly we don't, we're not going to defend this guy and his legacy, but 
they said there is a, a burden on us as individuals who live on the street to, to make all these changes with our bills and with the, um, with the post office and to, you know, if you've got return address stamps or what, I mean, there's, again, it might not be significant cost, but it is a time investment and a, and some level of a financial investment that people will have to make, um, to change everything in their life that has their address on it. And so I, I've said that, you know, if we're going to do this, we need to have at least at minimum a liaison in the city who is helping these people on these you know, dozen or so streets work through this process that maybe is working directly with the post office to say, what all changes can the city help initiate for these residents so they don't have to do it themselves. And so I think that's something that maybe I hadn't really considered before. Um, and one of the reasons that, so I've been told, one of the reasons that Second Street was picked to become MLK was that there weren't, but it's, there weren't a ton of businesses that had Second Street addresses. So it did minimize that impact. Um, while it still was a very prominent street to honor Dr. King, um, they didn't, it didn't impact as many businesses and there's no resident, no residential on Second Street or it wasn't at the time. So um, that's one thing I think we've got to consider. But I think you brought up a valid point too, which is... Oh, can I make my own point? Or would you well, like to make just, it for I was, me? <laughs> I was just going to say, should we be naming stuff after people? Well, yeah. So like, so uh, I we had committee this week uh, where I voted to um, move it to full council discussion to support it. And here's the reason. Um, on one side of the coin, it can feel like with the broader battles that we have going on politically in this country, um, it can almost feel like some of this stuff is weaponized, right? And I, I don't take that lightly um, and, that, and that it bothers me, right? When I feel like, well, is this just a weaponized way of, of kind of saying, you know, this is, this is, this is party warfare. Um, but still within that same thing, I, what I try to do is step back and say, how can I be, how can I empathize with others and what I've heard from the commission and from community feedback? And the thing that got me on that front is um, some of them are, are, are walk past these streets every day and they see that and they remember it. And it, it, it's, it's something that affects them. And I can't fully understand what that feels like personally, because I haven't gone through that, but I can empathize with it. And I can say, all right, well, we get past the first thing you just said of, like, you know, the costs and the implications of doing that. I can, I can wrap my mind and that's the, hopefully the future of whatever party you're in, you can empathize a little more. Um, but I made a point when I said that in committee, when I voted for, which I think is just as important, which is you, can we, I asked staff, can you figure out a plan where, and where we don't name streets or monuments or anything like that after people anymore? Because at the end of the day, we're seeing right now that we're looking back on a different era in history with today's lens. And you can't do that any more than you can try to take today's lens and figure out what 60, 70, 80 years from now, what it will be like and how they'll view what we're doing right now. So rather than continue to, to there's no way we can anticipate something that may seem completely innocent to us right now, what the ultimate ramifications of that are. I mean, look, look back or, to, or you find out new information about somebody who people are complicated, undoubtedly people who we look at and, and only think of them for the great things they've done. There's probably some complicated parts to them too. And we find that out 10, 20, a hundred years later. And then you go, maybe we shouldn't have named that street after Bill whatever. Cosby, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> right? um, I don't know if Harvey Weinstein's ever done anything good in his life, but, uh, 
Bill Cosby had certainly done some good work. And, and now you'd look and, and clearly if there were a Cosby street in Philadelphia or somewhere, you'd go, well, hell no, we're not going. So, so to, to cap that point off, my, my whole point in that is uh, if we're going to move forward out of the 2020 mindset of just craziness and where we are today, we're, we're going to have to pick our battles and we're also going to have to show some good goodwill. My hope is while I could have gone to one side and say, well, you know, while there's some merit there, this is a political attack and a partisan thing. You know what? I just put that aside and say, you know, I want to show some goodwill so that on the next topic, we can show goodwill back and forth and be empathetic towards the perspectives of each side. And to me, you know, I, I just think the broader point of let's stay out of the business of naming stuff because <laughs> we don't need to pass this on to another council and another generation from now. And I think we can... Uh... And again, one of the suggestions was to possibly basically just do a proclamation. And I don't know if this was a suggestion from the commission, but this is one that I had heard and I had uh, repeated, um, you know, take Stonewall Street and just do a proclamation that says Stonewall Street is officially now in recognition of the Stonewall riots in, in New York, um, which was a, a civil rights movement around the LGBT community. So I, that's stupid. Well, that's you true, because so. you are actually rewriting history and doing that. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like it's one thing to change a name and say, we're not going to put it there. That's literally, I think by definition, rewriting history. Well, um, it would alleviate some of the burdens I referenced earlier, but I, but my point is you could name things after, um, you know, you can name things after, events maybe in in some of these eras or some of these movements um i think there's ways you could honor the movement and honor the causes if we went in the direction you're talking about where we're not necessarily using a name because what else are we going to find out down the road and we go oh we shouldn't have named it after them either um so i, I think it's a, it's a trick it's a it's a very tricky line to walk and it's it's very hard to create specific rules that would help you determine, and we've got to, we've got to think what a council in 20 years, how they're going to handle it. What's, where do you draw the line and say, this is the criteria by which someone deserves to have a street named after them. And this is the criteria by which we would determine that that person should have their honorary street removed. And I just don't know how you could write that very clearly. This is a massive waste of our time when we have an affordable housing crisis, an upward mobility crisis, transportation problem, all this stuff. So, like, to be my fair, whole point this is, is not this is this has been a citizen committee, and the council has just taken it up, and we've not really invested a ton of time on it. So, I don't think we've been distracted from our more pressing uh, matters. That's only to deliver us an external recommendation. We have to go execute on it now. Again, I don't think it's going to be a huge time suck relative to the, the total amount of time being not. spent on these other issues. Um, all right, Charlotte moves. Oh, yeah. So last citizen, the last of the citizen committees that we'll discuss and the last topic for today um, was a big part of our retreat. And frankly, if I had to guess, you know, top three, probably top two, maybe top one thing that we'll spend time on as a council and as a city in 2021, it's it's going to be around transit. Um, the transit plan, and this group was led by Harvey Gant, um, former mayor, and my Charlotte hero. Um, and the plan is ambitious. And I, but I think that, and I think you and I largely agree on on this point. I think the biggest issue on where we stand now and where we're trying to get to. And when I say we're trying to get to, I know, you know, you might or might not, depending on how this shakes out, end up being fully on board with this, but 
it, the plan where the plan's trying to get to is is messaging. I think that to date, and and we still have time to fix this, but to date, I don't think we've gonna done a good enough job of helping people understand that this is not just funding for rails. That there's improvements on streets. There's greenways. There's sidewalks. There's uh, bus uh, system improvements. I think people need to understand this is not just a couple of rail lines. And I and I think we've got to do a better job of tailoring our communication, our conversations with the towns and with surrounding areas in the region to help them understand what the direct benefit to them is. Because this on its face, I think seems very Charlotte centric. And I think the reaction we're seeing from the towns right now reflects that that's how they feel is that this has been very Charlotte centric and what's in it for them. And I think we've, we've got to make the case. I think there is a lot of value in it for them. I don't think we've properly equipped those elected officials to go to their constituents and make that case of why they should vote for this if it's on the ballot in November, which is a whole nother thing. We need to get permission from Raleigh. And I think we've got to make that case in, in a stronger way than we've made it up to this point if we expect them to even allow us to move forward with this. Well, Representative Jason Sane, good friend of the pod. Uh, he was watching at least a little bit ago. I don't know if he's still on, but love for him to weigh in on on his thoughts on on that uh, uh, proposition going to Raleigh. But he, here's Here's the, here's the punch list of, of my thoughts on this, which is, I'm not going to do it justice now, but I'll try to move real quick. One, you're being real generous when you say the plan is, because I won't rehash everything I said about the arts, but the same exact principle applies. Um, when you read the plan, and I'm not trying to knock any of the hard work of the city, they worked hard to get where they are. It's the age old Charlotte approach where a plan is actually a marketing and brand positioning um, approach for how to find an amount, a source of funding, and um, how to get the public to um, buy into it and all the other stakeholders. That's literally it. So look no further than reading that, you know, dozens of page document uh, that it, to, and to say it's it's a, a, not a plan to ask, okay, so what are you going to do? Like how, how much money is going to be spent on roads versus bicycling versus, um, versus pedestrian stuff versus whatever, right? Greenways. Um, I, I believe what happened is there is a broader vision for light rail of which people want to get through. They've seen what's happened with referendums and the community backing up and, and balking at things. So they tried to back their way into a comprehensive transportation plan. Uh, and it was it's really been more of a marketing pitch and it's just adding some things in there like, 60 miles of new roads and things like that, that are truly rounding errors when we actually see the dollar amount. So I'm not saying I'm opposed to us making a gamble and us making, um, ma making our way down a path for investing in the infrastructure we need for the future that moves people around. I, I have a problem thinking that the towns are going to be on board with this because I, I know many of them aren't, right? And I think we've got, that's a big ask. Even if they are, Raleigh in this Dillon rules state is another huge factor. And Raleigh meaning um, the state government. The state government, sorry, yeah, yeah um, the General Assembly. And um, I, am, I am not convinced that's gonna be the smoothest path ever. Um, but even so, it's gotta get past the, the, the uh, referendum with folks. And in, in somewhere in there, someone's gotta show us the city council the plan so that we can understand what it is. So uh, my final point on this is, I believe there's an unanswered question that is really, really important to this, which is what is the future of transportation, of moving people, right? 
because we are at this fourth industrial revolution of technology and all this stuff where when they were planning for the blue line, which again, had more of an economic development impact to land and property than it did moving people. And it did fine for that, but it's not what it was presented as originally, right? Um, the thought of autonomous vehicles was not uh, as material of an item as it is on our horizon today. So it said most simply, you know, when you look at the data points of by 2022, we're going to see a much more ubiquitous use of, of autonomous vehicles. And by 2028, many are projecting that a majority of cars coming off of uh, the, the assembly line will not have steering wheels. And then with the rollout of 5G and all those things, the question is, will people be moved 10 and 15 years from now, which is the time horizon by which this stuff will, will kind of be in place at a material level, Will people be moved by rail, on roads, or in the sky even, right? And I think that is the crux of the biggest gamble, the biggest wager in Charlotte's history here, which is, you know, I, I feel like we're Polaroid and somebody's telling us, oh, the future is digital cameras right now. And we're like, no, nah, people will always want to shake their thing and look at it, right? At the end of the day, all of those pictures. bets require a huge amount of money. And Polaroid's making a comeback. Maybe I, I doubt it. I, I see it's, it's somebody who bought the name Polaroid then. Um, so I, my whole point is I, I would hate for us to go down a path that's riddled with other pit, pitfalls in it without fully thinking about the future of transportation. Because if we say we're going to make a bet on infrastructure and 5G and, and people will move in autonomous vehicles, then that bet requires us to invest some into the technology broadband 5G infrastructure and a boatload into the roads where this will actually occur. And then we have to adjust our laws and regulations, how people are insured when a, when a machine is driving a car, all these kinds of other things. But to ignore that would be a severe mistake. Agreed on that point. Uh, if people want to see, you can Google uh, Charlotte Moves Task Force report and find that pretty easily uh, online. And it is, it, it's pretty robust. And to your point, you know, there, there are things that need to be drilled down into on the, the cost and where the cost lies in each of these projects. But I do think that it does a, a better job than you give it credit for. If you look at the maps on where these investments will be, um, it does show you where the, the investments and where the proposed um, greenways and sidewalk connectivity and road improvements and things like that. So um, I think people can see that the benefit is spread throughout the community, what the what there's would be a pledge to, to fulfill, but um, there are questions around the cost and, and the funding. And um, I think we've got a lot of work ahead of us. So, um, but, but I do think we, we have it, we're in January. Uh, I think we have enough runway to get there. Uh, but I do think it is, that is going to be far and away the biggest topic of 2021. I think that's where the most time is going to be invested um, I hope so, because yeah, it's going to have to be the only alternative to that would be something net new pops up and that won't be pretty. <laughs> oh. um, all right. Well, I know you have got a commitment as do I, we're going to put a bow on this, but um, we will be, if you we were with us last week, you heard us talk about the fact that the James Mitchell has left council. Um, the application period for that seat is open now. Anyone who lives in the city of Charlotte is over the age of 21, which actually I didn't realize it was 21 and not 18. 
not real sure why that is, but you have to be 21 apparently. You need three years of solid drinking before we'll allow you. <laughs> I don't know if Experience you know this, but under your legal head. drinking age oh, is 21, not I 18. I just did that backwards. I'm sorry. Yeah. I know, I know you started drinking at 18, and but you know. I'll try to edit this out for the for the, okay. the audio version of the podcast. Um, I'm exhausted. And, and you have to be a Democrat because he was elected as a Democrat. Um, the application's online, but it'll close Tuesday at 5 p.m. We'll know who else in the mix then. And so like a week ago. Who are the top now, three candidates? Not saying. Come on, um, man. We don't even have all the applications in Can yet. you Democrats let us in on what's going on behind the scene just a little bit? You know, um, but we mm -hmm. will have them on the pod. So it'll be a week from Monday. We'll be voting on somebody. Oh, we should. Ha yes, we'll have the top folks on the pod. That's a great idea. No, I meant whoever we choose. No, um, let's have let's have a let's have a showdown on the pod, bro. Cage match. Um, oh, this could be amazing or terrible. Yeah, but whatever. <laughs> okay, well, either way, there will be a new council member in under two weeks, and uh, we will have them on the pod as we have had all of our colleagues on council. On the Let pod. us know, guys, in the comments here, as well as uh, on social media. For those of you who listen to this uh, um, in the audio form of the podcast. Let us know if you want uh, the next episode of the pod, I believe it would have to be the next one, to be a debate of the leading candidates for the at-large appointment to city council. Please, this let us know. Are, this thing is already messy enough. Uh, I don't think we need to make it any messier. Oh, no. All right, episode 109. Uh, again, we are pledging to you to hold ourselves to doing a more regular show. And... Um, so hopefully we'll be back. If, if nothing else, we'll be updating on our new colleague and introducing you to him. And uh, Him, huh? Oh, you've already decided it's a man? That was an E-M, introducing you to him. Him? To him? Um. Introducing you to him. Um, that We're was getting gender, some re that was replies already. Becca says, sure. She that was a gender, that. gender neutral term I used, Tark. I don't know if you know about that, but... Um, I don't know anything about that. Bring them all on, says Dan Barry. All like, what if it's a hundred? We'll just line them all up and we'll throw out questions like, whoever would like to take it. Yeah, there's going to be a lot. I like it. Let's do it. Okay. Well, I can't even see the comments you're saying. So, um, let's call it a day. Like, share, rate, subscribe, tell a friend. We'll talk to you soon. Episode 109 in the books. Me and my trusty sidekick are out.